Chapter twenty five and twenty six of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter twenty five. The Steam Launch. Mr. Tom Jackson's notion of making good his escape from the hotel by means of a steam launch was an excellent one, so far as it went. But Theodore Rexall, for his part, did not consider that it went quite far enough. Theodore Rexall opined, with peculiar glee, that he now had a tangible and definite clue for the catching of the Grand Babylon's ex-waiter. He knew nothing of the Port of London, but he happened to know a good deal of the far more complicated, though somewhat smaller, Port of New York, and he felt sure there ought to be no extraordinary difficulty in getting hold of Jules' steam launch. To those who were not thoroughly familiar with it, the river Thames and its docks, from London Bridge to Gravesend, seems a vast and uncharted wilderness of craft, a wilderness in which it would be perfectly easy to hide even a three-master successfully. To such people, the idea of looking for a steam launch on the river would be about equivalent to the idea of looking for a needle in a bundle of hay. But the fact is, there are hundreds of men between St. Catherine's Wharf and Blackwall, who literally know the Thames as the suburban householder knows his back garden who can recognize thousands of ships and put a name to them at a distance of half a mile, who are informed as to every movement of vessels on the great stream, who know all the captains, all the engineers, all the lightermen, all the pilots, all the licensed watermen, and all the unlicensed scoundrels from the tower to Gravesend, and a lot further. By these experts of the Thames, the slightest unusual event on the water is noticed and discussed. A wary cannot change hands, but they will guess shrewdly upon the price paid and the intentions of the new owner with regard to it. They have a habit of watching the river for the mere interest of the sight, and they talk about everything, like housewives gathered of an evening round the cottage door. If the first mate of a castle liner gets the sack, they will be able to tell you what he said to the captain, what the old man said to him, and what both said to the board and having finished off that affair, they will cheerfully turn to discussing whether Bill Stevens sank his barge outside the West Indian No. 2 by accident or on purpose. Theodore Rexall had no satisfactory means of identifying the steam launch which carried away Mr. Tom Jackson. The sky had clouded over soon after midnight, and there was also a slight mist, and he had only been able to make out that it was a low craft, about sixty feet long, probably painted black. He had personally kept a watch all through the night on vessels going upstream, and during the next morning he had a man to take his place who warned him whenever a steam launch went towards Westminster. At noon, after his conversation with Prince Aribert, he went down the river in a hired rowboat as far as the Custom House, and poked about everywhere, in search of any vessel which could by any possibility be the one he was in search of. But he found nothing. He was, therefore, tolerably sure that the mysterious launch lay somewhere below the Custom House. At the Custom House stairs he landed, and asked for a very high official, an official inferior only to a commissioner, whom he had entertained once in New York, and who had met him in London on business at Lloyd's. In the large but dingy office of this great man a long conversation took place, a conversation in which Rexall had to exercise a certain amount of persuasive power, and which ultimately ended in the high official ringing his bell. "'Desire Mr. Hazel, room number 332, to speak to me,' said the official to the boy who answered the summons, and then, turning to Rexall, "'I need hardly repeat, my dear Mr. Rexall, that this is strictly unofficial.' "'Agreed, of course,' said Rexall. Mr. Hazel entered. He was a young man of about thirty, dressed in blue serge. 
with a pale, keen face, a brown moustache, and a rather handsome brown beard. "'Mr. Hazel,' said the high official, "'let me introduce you to Mr. Theodore Rexall. You will doubtless be familiar with his name. Mr. Hazel,' he went on to Rexall, "'is one of our outdoor staff, what we call an examining officer. Just now he's doing night duty. He has a boat on the river, and a couple of men, and the right to board and examine any craft whatever.' What Mr. Hazel and his crew don't know about the Thames between here and Gravesend isn't knowledge. "'Glad to meet you, sir,' said Rexall simply, and they shook hands. Rexall observed with satisfaction that Mr. Hazel was entirely at his ease. "'Now, Hazel,' the high official continued, "'Mr. Rexall wants you to help in a little private expedition on the river tonight. I will give you a night's leave. I sent for you partly because I thought you would enjoy the affair, and partly because I think I can rely on you to regard it as entirely unofficial, and not to talk about it. You understand? I dare say you will have no cause to regret having obliged Mr. Rexall. "'I think I grasp the situation,' said Hazel, with a slight smile. "'And, by the way,' added the high official, "'although the business is unofficial, it might be well if you wore your official overcoat. See?' "'Decidedly,' said Hazel. "'I should have done so in any case.' "'And now, Mr. Hazel,' said Rexall, "'will you do me the pleasure of lunching with me? "'If you agree, if you agree, "'I should like to lunch at the place you usually frequent.' "'So it came to pass that Theodore Rexall and George Hazel, "'outdoor clerk in the customs, "'lunched together at Thomas's chop-house "'in the city of London, upon mutton-chops and coffee. "'The millionaire soon discovered "'that he had got hold of a keen-witted man "'and a person of much insight.' "'Tell me,' said Hazel, when they had reached the cigarette stage, "'are the magazine writers anything like correct?' "'What do you mean?' asked Rexall, mystified. "'Well, you're a millionaire, one of the best, I believe. "'One often sees articles on and interviews with millionaires "'which describe their private railroad cars, their steam yachts on the Hudson, "'their marble stables, and so on, and so on. "'Do you happen to have those things?' I have a private car on the New York Central, and I have a two-thousand-ton schooner yacht, though it isn't on the Hudson. It happens just now to be on East River. And I'm bound to admit that the stables of my uptown place are fitted with marmal. Ah, said Hazel, now I can believe that I'm lunching with a millionaire. It is strange how facts like those, unimportant in themselves, appeal to the imagination. You seem to me a real millionaire now. You've given me some personal information. I'll give you some in return. I earn three hundred a year, and perhaps sixty pounds a year extra for overtime. I live by myself, in two rooms in Musquey Court. I've as much money as I need, and I always do exactly what I like outside office. As regards the office, I do as little work as I can, on principle. It's a fight between us and the commissioners, who shall get the best. They try to do us down, and we try to do them down. It's pretty even on the whole. All's fair in war, you know, and there ain't no Ten Commandments in a government office. Rexall laughed. Can you get off this afternoon? he asked. Certainly, said Hazel. I'll get one of my pals to sign on for me, and then I shall be free. Well, said Rexall, I should like you to come down with me to the Grand Babylon. Then we can talk over my little affair at length. And may we go on your boat? I want to meet your crew. That will be all right, Hazel remarked. My two men are the idlest, most soulless chaps you ever saw. They eat too much, and they have an enormous appetite for beer. But they know the river, and they know their business, 
and they will do anything within the fair game if they're paid for it and aren't asked to hurry. That night, just after dark, Theodore Wexel embarked with his new friend George Hazel in one of the black-painted customs wherries, manned by a crew of two men, both the latter free men of the river, a distinction which carries with it certain privileges unfamiliar to the mere landsman. It was a cloudy and oppressive evening, not a star showing to illumine the slow tide, now just past its flood. The vast forms of steamers at anchor, chiefly those of the general steam navigation and the Aberdeen line, heaved themselves high out of the water, straining sluggishly at their mooring boys. On either side the naked walls of warehouses rose like grey precipices from the stream, holding forth quaint arms of steam cranes. To the west the tower bridge spanned the river with its formidable arch, and above that its suspended footpath, a hundred and fifty feet from earth. Down towards the east and the Pool of London, a forest of funnels and masts was dimly outlined against the sinister sky. Huge barges, each steered by a single man at the end of a pair of giant oars, lumbered and swirled downstream at all angles. Occasionally a tuck snorted busily past, flashing its red and green signals and dragging an unwieldy tail of barges in its wake. Then a Margate passenger steamer, its electric lights gleaming from every porthole, swerved round to anchor, with its load of two thousand fatigued excursionists. Over everything brooded an air of mystery, a spirit and feeling of strangeness, remoteness, and the inexplicable. As the broad, flat little boat bobbed its way under the shadow of enormous hulks, beneath stretched horses, and past boys covered with green slime, Rexhill could scarcely believe that he was in the very heart of London, the most prosaic city in the world. He had a queer idea that almost anything might happen in this seeming waste of waters at this weird hour of ten o'clock. It appeared incredible to him that only a mile or two away people were sitting in theatres applauding farces, and that at Cannon Street Station, a few yards off, other people were calmly taking the train to various highly respectable suburbs whose names he was gradually learning. He had the uplifting sensation of being in another world, which comes to us, sometimes, amid surroundings violently different from our usual surroundings. The most ordinary noises, of men calling, of a chain running through a slot, of a distant siren, translated themselves to his ears into terrible and haunting sounds, full of portentous significance. He looked over the side of the boat into the brown water, and asked himself what frightful secrets lay hidden in its death. Then he put his hand into his hip-pocket and touched the stock of his cold revolver. That familiar substance comforted him. The oarsman had instructions to drop slowly down to the pool, as the wide reach below the tower is called. These two men had not been previously informed of the precise object of the expedition, but now that they were safely afloat, Hazel judged it expedient to give them some notion of it. "'We expect to come across a rather suspicious steam-launch,' he said. My friend here is very anxious to get a sight of her, and until he has seen her, nothing definite can be done. "'What sort of craft is she, sir?' asked Stroke Orr, a fat-faced man who seemed absolutely incapable of any serious exertion. "'I don't know,' Rexel replied, "'but as near as I can judge, she is about sixty feet in length, and painted black. I fancy I shall recognize her when I see her.' "'Not much to go by, that,' exclaimed the other man curtly but he said no more. He, as well as his mate, had received from Theodore Rexall one English sovereign as a kind of preliminary fee, 
and an English sovereign will do a lot towards silencing the natural sarcastic tendencies and free speech of a Thames waterman. "'There's one thing I noticed,' said Raxall suddenly, "'and I forgot to tell you of it, Mr. Hazel. Her screw seemed to move with a rather irregular, lame sort of beat.' Both watermen burst into a laugh. "'Oh,' said the fat rower, "'I know what you're after, sir. It's Jack Everett's launch, commonly called Squirm. She's got a four-bladed propeller, and one blade is broken off short.' "'Aye, that's it, sure enough,' agreed the man in the bows. "'And if it's her you want, I see the lying up against Cherry Gardens Pier this very morning.' "'Let us go to Cherry Gardens Pier, by all means, as soon as possible,' Rexall said, and the boat swung across stream and then began to creep down by the right bank, feeding its way past wharves, many of which, even at that hour, were still busy with their cranes, that descended empty into the bellies of ships and came up full. As the two watermen gingerly manoeuvred the boat on the ebbing tide, Hazel explained to the millionaire that the squirm was one of the most notorious craft on the river. It appeared that when anyone had a nefarious or underhand scheme afoot, which necessitated river work, Everett's launch was always available for a suitable monetary consideration. The squirm had got itself into a thousand scrapes, and out of those scrapes again with safety, if not precisely with honour. The river police kept a watchful eye on it, and the chief marvel about the whole thing was that old Everett, the owner, had never yet been seriously compromised in any illegal escapade. Not once had the officer of the law been able to prove anything definite against the proprietor of the squirm, though several of its quondam hires were at that very moment in various of Her Majesty's prisons throughout the country. Latterly, however, the launch, with its damaged propeller, which Everett consistently refused to have repaired, had acquired an evil reputation, even among evildoers, and this fraternity had gradually come to abandon it for less easily recognisable craft. "'Your friend, Mr. Tom Jackson,' said Hazel to Rexall, "'committed an error of discretion when he hired the squirm. A scoundrel of his experience in calibre ought certainly to have known better than that. You cannot fail to get a clue now.' By this time the boat was approaching Cherry Gardens Pier, but unfortunately a thin night fog had swept over the river, and objects could not be discerned with any clearness beyond a distance of thirty yards. As the customs boat scraped down past the pier, all its occupants strained eyes for a glimpse of the mysterious launch, but nothing could be seen of it. The boat continued to float idly downstream, the men resting on their oars. Then they narrowly escaped bumping a large Norwegian sailing vessel at anchor with her stem pointing downstream. This ship they passed on the port side. Just as they got clear of her bowsprit, the fat man cried out excitedly, "'There's a nose!' and he put the boat about and began to pull back against the tide. And surely the missing squirm was comfortably anchored on the starboard quarter of the Norwegian ship, hidden neatly between the ship and the shore. The men pulled very quietly alongside. Chapter 26 The Night Chase and the Mudlark "'I'll board her to start with,' said Hazel, whispering to Rexall. "'I'll make out that I suspect they've got dutiable goods on board, and that will give me a chance to have a good look at her.' Dressed in his official overcoat and peaked cap, he stepped, rather jauntily as Rexall thought, onto the low deck of the launch. "'Anyone aboard?' Rexall heard him cry out, and a woman's voice answered. "'I'm a customs examining officer, and I want to search the launch,' Hazel shouted, and then disappeared down into the little saloon amidships, and Rexall heard no more. It seemed to the millionaire that Hazel had been gone hours, 
but at length he returned. "'Can't find anything,' he said, as he jumped into the boat, and then privately to Rexall. "'There's a woman on board. Looks as if she might coincide with your description of Miss Spencer. Steam's up, but there's no engineer. I asked where the engineer was, and she inquired what business that was of mine, and requested me to go through with my own business and clear off. Seems rather a smart sort. I poked my nose into everything, but I saw no sign of anyone else.' Perhaps we'd better pull away and lie near for a bit, just to see if anything queer occurs. "'You're quite sure he isn't on board?' Rexel asked. "'Quite,' said Hazel positively. "'I know how to search a vessel. See this.' And he handed to Rexel a sort of steel skewer, about two feet long, with a wooden handle. "'That,' he said, "'is one of the customs aids to searching.' "'I suppose it wouldn't do to go on board and carry off the lady,' Rexel suggested doubtfully. "'Well,' Hazel began, with equal doubtfulness, "'as for that—' "'Where's he off?' It was the man in the bows who interrupted Hazel. Following the direction of the man's finger, both Hazel and Rexall saw with more or less distinctness a dinghy slip away from the forefoot of the Norwegian vessel and disappear downstream into the mist. "'It's Jules, I'll swear,' cried Rexall. "'After him, man. Ten pounds apiece if we overtake him.' "'Lay down to it now, boys,' said Hazel and the heavy customs boat shot out in pursuit. "'This is going to be a lark,' Rexel remarked. "'Depends on what you call a lark,' said Hazel. "'It's not much of a lark tearing down midstream like this in a fog. You never know when you mayn't be in Kingdom Come, with all these barges knocking around. I expect that chap hid in the dinghy when he first caught sight of us, and then slipped his painter as soon as I'd gone.' The boat was moving at a rapid pace with the tide. Steering was a matter of luck and instinct more than anything else. Every now and then Hazel, who held the lines, was obliged to jerk the boat's head sharply round to avoid a barge or an anchored vessel. It seemed to Rexall that vessels were anchored all over the stream. He looked about him anxiously, but for a long time he could see nothing but mist and vague nautical forms. Then suddenly he said, quietly enough, "'We're on the right road. I can see him ahead. We're gaining on him.' In another minute the dinghy was plainly visible, not twenty yards away, and the sculler, sculling frantically now, was unmistakably Jules. Jules in a light tweed suit and a bowler hat. "'You were right,' Hazel said. "'This is a lark. I believe I'm getting quite excited. It's more exciting than playing the trombone in an orchestra. I'll run him down, eh? And then we can drag the chap in from the water.' Rexall nodded, but at that moment a barge with a red sail set stood out of the fog clean across the bows of the customs boat, which narrowly escaped instant destruction. When they got clear, and the usual interchange of calm, nonchalant swearing was over, the dinghy was barely to be discerned in the mist, and the fat man was breathing in such a manner that his sighs might almost have been heard on the banks. Rexall wanted violently to do something, but there was nothing to do, and he could only sit supine by Hazel's side in the stern-sheets. Gradually they began again to overtake the dinghy, whose one-man crew was evidently tiring. As they came up, hand over fist, the dinghy's nose swerved aside, and the tiny craft passed down a water-lane between two anchored mineral barges, which lay black and deserted about fifty yards from the Surrey shore. "'To starboard,' said Rexall. "'No, man,' Hazel replied. "'We can't get through there. He's bound to come out below. It's only a feint. I'll keep our nose straight ahead.' And they went on, the fat man pounding away, with a face which glistened even in the thick gloom. It was an empty dinghy which emerged from between the two barges and went drifting and revolving down towards Greenwich. 
The fat man gasped a word to his comrade, and the customs boat stopped dead. "'He's all right,' said the man in the bows. "'If it's him you want, he's on one of them barges, so you've only got to step on and take him off.' "'That's all,' said a voice out of the depths of the nearest barge, and it was the voice of Jules, otherwise known as Mr. Tom Jackson. "'Hear him?' said the fat man, smiling. "'He's a good one, he is. But if I was you, Mr. Hazel, or you, sir, I shouldn't step on to that barge so quick as all that.' They backed the boat under the stem of the nearest barge and gazed upwards. "'It's all right,' said Rexel to Hazel. "'I've got a revolver. How can I clamber up there?' "'Yes, I dare say you've got a revolver all right,' Hazel replied sharply. "'But you mustn't use it. There mustn't be any noise. We should have the river police down on us in a twinkling if there was a revolver shot, and it would be the ruin of me. If an inquiry was held, the commissioners wouldn't take any official notice of the fact that my superior officer had put me on to this job, and I should be requested to leave the service.' "'Have no fear on that score,' said Rexall. "'I shall, of course, take all responsibility.' "'It wouldn't matter how much responsibility you took,' Hazel retorted. "'You wouldn't put me back into the service, and my career would be at an end.' "'But there are other careers,' said Rexall, who was really anxious to lame his ex-waiter by means of a judiciously aimed bullet. "'There are other careers.' "'The customs is my career,' said Hazel. "'So let's have no shooting. We'll wait about a bit. He can't escape.' "'You can have my skewer, if you like.' And he gave Rexall his searching instrument. "'And you can do what you please, provided you do it neatly and don't make a row over it.' For a few moments the four men were passive in the boat, surrounded by swirling mist, with black water beneath them and towering above them a half-loaded barge with a desperate and resourceful man on board. Suddenly the mist parted and shriveled away in patches, as though before the breath of some monster. The sky was visible— it was a clear sky, and the moon was shining. The transformation was just one of those meteorological quick changes which happen most frequently on a great river. "'That's a sight better,' said the fat man. At the same moment a head appeared over the edge of the barge. It was Jules' face, dark, sinister, and leering. "'Is it Mr. Rexall in that boat?' he inquired calmly. "'Because if so, let Mr. Rexall step up. Mr. Rexall has caught me.' and he can have me for the asking. Here I am. He stood up to his full height on the barge, tall against the night sky, and all the occupants of the boat could see that he held firmly clasped in his right hand a short dagger. Now, Mr. Rexall, you've been after me for a long time, he continued. Here I am. Why don't you step up? If you haven't got the pluck yourself, persuade someone else to step up in your place. The same fair treatment will be accorded to all." and Jules laughed a low, penetrating laugh. He was in the midst of this laugh when he lurched suddenly forward. "'What are you doing off aboard my barge? Off you goes!' It was a boy's small, shrill voice that sounded in the night. A ragged boy's small form had appeared silently behind Jules, and two small arms with a vicious shove precipitated him into the water. He fell with a fine, gurgling splash. It was at once obvious that swimming was not among Jules' accomplishments. He floundered wildly and sank. When he reappeared, he was dragged into the customs boat. Rope was produced, and in a minute or two the man lay ignominiously bound in the bottom of the boat. With the aid of a mudlark, a mere barge-boy, who probably had no more right on the barge than Jules himself, Rexall had won his game. For the first time for several weeks the millionaire experienced the sensation of equanimity and satisfaction. 
He leant over the prostrate form of Jules, Hazel's professional skewer in his hand. "'What are you going to do with him now?' asked Hazel. "'We'll row up to the landing steps in front of the Grand Babylon. He shall be well lodged at my hotel, I promise him.' Jules spoke no word. Before Rexall parted company with the customs man that night, Jules had been safely transported into the Grand Babylon Hotel, and the two watermen had received their ten pounds apiece. "'You will sleep here,' said the millionaire to Mr. George Hazel. "'It is late.' "'With pleasure,' said Hazel. The next morning he found a sumptuous breakfast awaiting him, and in his table-napkin was a Bank of England note for a hundred pounds. But, though he did not hear of them till much later, Many things had happened before Hazel consumed that sumptuous breakfast. End of chapter 25 and 26